Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, confused male in the forest that is female. That really is a description of like your whole uh, adult life, I think, right? And my adolescence as well. <laughs> All right. Awesome. <laughs> So uh, we're going to get a lot of uh, confusion here in this episode. Uh, This season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1999, the uh, awesomest movie year ever, maybe, according to some people. Including author Brian Rafferty, who wrote the book Best Movie Year Ever, which uh, was the basis of this season we talked about. Yeah. And this episode is our uh, first feature for a notable debut from a filmmaker. And we are talking about Sofia Coppola and her film, The Virgin Suicides. Her first film as a director, of course, she had acted to uh, not particular acclaim in some of her father's work prior I, to this. Yeah. And it's a little unfair it because is. she was kind of pushed into that and like, you know, if you're coming into the Godfather franchise, that that really stinks. She's horrible in that film. We see certain directors who cast their kids and the kids really uh, do great. But uh, she's definitely a director, not an actor. Yeah. And it was interesting to me looking at reviews and stuff of this film, because, of course, now we think of her as a major director who's made some hugely acclaimed, successful films. But at the time, they thought of her as this, you know, spoiled daughter who was terrible in the godfather and there was a lot of skepticism over this film right and i remember when she was kind of uh uh she said that this book made her want to become a director because she could see it so clearly in her head what it was yeah jeffrey eugenides is the author of the novel the virgin suicides this was his first novel and was also a hugely acclaimed success before the movie so there's that added expectation of She's adapting this beloved novel, and will she do a good job of it? Not just that, it was already adapted by Nick Gomez, who was an indie filmmaker, Laws of Gravity, I think, and um, it just didn't click. I remember uh, Sofia Coppola said, like, maybe his point of view was too male and everything, so the studio was already working on it, and that version didn't really work. She basically just wrote it on her own to, like, oh, I want to see if I could write it, and she, the momentum kept building, so she wrote a whole script. And, uh, you know, whether whether it was the Coppola last name or the fact that it's actually a good script and a good film, she got to make the movie. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. There's been there's been a sort of renewed uh, discussion of the idea of a Hollywood nepotism online recently. And I'm sure being a Coppola opened a lot of doors for her. But but she followed through. I mean, I think that's the thing with the Hollywood nepotism is that, like, obviously it gives certain people a huge advantage. But. If they botch that, then eventually they're going to go away. Godfather 3 versus Virgin Suicides, literally the conversation. But Francis Ford Coppola did have to come in with finishing funds on this one. But uh, if you've made the money that Francis Ford Coppola has made and lost the money that Francis Ford Coppola has lost, you can afford some finishing funds. Yeah, and he's clearly willing, as as you there pointed out, uh, to put money behind projects that uh, he believes in but may not be a success. And of course, this... Turned out to be a success, although not a massive box office hit. It grossed uh, $10.4 million on its budget of $6.1 million. So, you know, a modest amount, but it it certainly hit a sort of a cultural zeitgeist in a lot of ways and has grown in reputation as, as kind of a cult classic over time. 
And especially as Sofia Coppola has made more films and has become more and more acclaimed. Right. And, you know, when we get to the legacy section, her next movie was the one that really catapulted her. Yes. Yes. So critics were mostly into this, although watching the episode of Ebert, Ebert and the Movies, which is what the show was called at the time, as we said, this was this whole year was sort of right after Gene Siskel's death and Ebert had all these various guest critics in. And in this episode, he had uh, Joyce Kulawick, a uh, critic on uh, local television. And uh, I just kind of skimmed through it before looking at this review. But uh, they did not agree about anything. Every time I kind of like pause to see where I was, they're arguing with each other. So she gave this movie thumbs down, felt like it was uh, not explained well enough and wanted uh, more of the narration. Well, uh, then she'd probably thumbs down every Sofia Coppola movie ever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She definitely seemed wrong, but Ebert loved it. He gave it thumbs up and vehemently disagreed with her. And it's interesting, I think, you know, you talked about maybe the male point of view of that original screenwriter versus Coppola's female point of view. And it's interesting to see that sort of dichotomy. Uh, at one point, Ebert accuses Joyce Kulawick of not liking this movie because she's a woman, which was maybe not <laughs> at Ebert's <laughs> best moment. But Ebert really fixated on the idea of this movie as being not as much about the female characters, but about the boys who lust after the Lisbon sisters here in this film. So Ebert, of course, as we've established in many, many episodes, very horny. Yeah, he, he <laughs> lusted after some ladies in his day. He did. So uh, in his review, he said, it is not important how the Lisbon sisters looked. What is important is how the teenage boys in the neighborhood thought they looked. There is a time in the adolescent season of every boy when a particular girl seems to have materialized in his dreams with backlighting from heaven. Sophia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides is narrated by an adult who speaks for, quote, we, for all the boys in a Michigan suburban neighborhood 25 years ago, who loved and lusted after the Lisbon girls. The Virgin Suicides is Sophia Coppola's first film, based on the much-discussed novel by Jeffrey Eugenides. She has the courage to play it in a minor key. She doesn't hammer home ideas and interpretations. She is content with the air of mystery and loss that hangs in the air like bitter poignancy. And I think that's a key thing that I had forgotten about this movie, that it like doesn't have a plot, really. Right. It's it's a mood piece. It's, it's a mood piece. Know. It really is. Yeah. But uh, but also BS to you, Ebert. Of course, it <laughs> matters uh, how the women, the girls looked, especially to the teenage boys. And sure, the teenage boys might have like, uh, you know, let it grow in their heads. But like. Dude, uh, it's nonsense. You know, you're a teenage boy. The first thing you notice is uh, the physical and probably the other way around. You there's a physical, uh, you know, attraction here. Right. And that comes up from the perspective of the girls, too, with Josh Hartnett's character. Trip Fontaine. Trip Fontaine. Yes. Great, great hunk name. Yeah. Trip Fontaine. Um, yeah. So I don't think and, and elsewhere. I mean, I had enough of the review there already, but elsewhere he complains that other reviewers have neglected the point of view of the male characters in this film. And I, I think he's really overstating that. I mean, I think it's unique. I mean, and I haven't read the book, but I know that they kind of do a bunch of different narration, almost like uh, documentary style, right? So look, the male point of view is important, but this is the Lisbon sisters movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, A.O. Scott in the New York Times said, A.O. <laughs> He said, Ms. Coppola has carefully preserved the spirit of her source and for the most part succeeded in her efforts 
to find a visual idiom appropriate to the lush melancholy of the novel's language. Edward Lockman, the director of photography, shoots the bright colors of the 1970s as if through a layer of gauze. His dimmed, fuzzy tones suggest the darkening shades of memory. But the film's ardent fidelity to Mr. Eugenides' style and sensibility is a mixed blessing. To read The Virgin Suicides is to succumb to a hazy linguistic daydream. All of this has required Ms. Coppola to create a feature film essentially without characters or a story, and to hold the viewer's interest through moods, associations, and resonant images. And again, that's something that struck me this time that I had forgotten that this movie really, in a lot of ways, doesn't have a plot or real characters. Yeah, and that's something that happens in some of her later movies as well. Um, I think never really to the degree the beguiled? that it is here. No, The Beguiled has a lot more plot. There's I mean, six girls, and I, you couldn't tell me uh, characteristics of all of them other than like one picks mushrooms and one's a teenage uh, temptress and one's a teacher. Come on, man. I mean, I think that's more differentiation than you have amongst the girls in this movie. <laughs> well, again, right. So, well, not that I want to compare it to the beguiled because that's a horrible movie. Oh no, I like the beguiled. Nobody likes the beguiled. <laughs> and um, <laughs> anyway, but I do, but the idea of like, we're talking from memory and it's all hazy and that look of like, you know, kind of fuzziness through there. And the fact that they never really got to know these girls other than that one night where they all took them out. Like, I guess that would be the reason where you couldn't get to know them better. And I think she executes it pretty well, but I wouldn't mind a little more character development. Yeah. And I'm not even necessarily saying it's bad. I just thought it was striking and unique that a movie would really be constructed that way, that it's all about sort of moods and impressions and, you know, remembered emotions rather than specific character detail. I think you're right. And uh, I mean, it really, yeah, it's almost baffling, but that's how it has to be, right? And, um, you know, we like to talk about it, but I want to bring it in early. The music by Air and all those like kind of 70s, like kind of fuzzy rock pieces, 10 cc's, I'm not in love. Like they give you that dreamy, almost like pre-shoegazy element, you know, and uh, it really enhances everything. Yeah, it is very dreamy and it's set up as sort of the memories of these boys. And I think that it gives it that quality of, of these hazy memories where you recall your feelings more than you recall specific details. Of yeah, things. tell us about one of your... Uh failed attempts at love as a teenager. That's not. Uh, so as a, but I, you know, I'm sort of almost surprised that Ebert didn't break out with one of those in his review because he, he enjoyed doing that. Um, so as a counterpoint to Ebert, Moira McDonald in the Seattle Times said, Sophia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides is such a disarmingly poetic and specifically female vision of adolescence that it belongs in a category of its own. Although it's about teenagers, it isn't a teen movie. Although it has a mystery at its center, the puzzle is never solved. And although it's a drama, very little of dramatic import happens. Very little that the title hasn't already told us, that is. What Coppola has achieved, however, is a sort of elegiac ode celebrating the lives and the touching naive beauty of teenage girls. And I think that, despite what Ebert says, that perspective of the teenage girls and, and the sort of uniqueness of it is important. I mean, there's an early scene when the, the youngest sister Cecilia has attempted suicide and survived and she's in the hospital and the doctor says like you don't 
you don't even know how hard life can be. And she says, you don't know how hard it is to be a 13 year old girl. Or right. Something. And I think that's a really telling line that sort of is, is giving you a lot of the thesis of the movie right up front. Right. Um, you know, and we're talking about this and I'm thinking of the rest of her catalog. And I think she executes this kind of mood piece better here than in a number of her other films, you know? So um, I got to give it credit in that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know what you're thinking of. To me, like, Somewhere is the movie that is the most it. of, uh, yeah, and that is my least favorite of her films, and yeah. where the, the sort of moodiness doesn't really uh, properly come through. The Beguiled is right there with it. I, I, I don't agree with you on The Beguiled. I love the trailer for The Beguiled. It's not, a, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, I'm not trying like, to say. Like, oh, the poster's good, so I'm going to say it's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but I think it's better than you're giving it credit for. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get more into that later. You're beguiling me with your love of the beguiled. <laughs> well, see, that's wrong because that would mean I was like convincing you and drawing you in. And Oh, I thought it was confusing. I didn't know what the word beguiled means, apparently. <laughs> Maybe that's right. why you didn't like it. Yeah, Jason, no. Jason needs a dictionary to appreciate movies. Oh, I need so many things. Tacos, <laughs> a dictionary. Anyway, the <laughs> virgin <things>. suicide. <laughs> the virgin suicide. Yeah, two things. Two really things that don't always go together. And they're both accessible. Yeah, so. it's very easy. Anyway, the virgin suicides. I think had we we had all seen this, uh, you know, on its original release. Had you, Jason? Yes, I did. I can tell you. I think I might probably it was a DVD video thing, but this was like one of those in the '90s. You're like, check this off. Wait for this to be available. I'm not sure if it was available. You know, I'm sure it played out here, but I definitely saw this, and I I remember really loving it my first time. I didn't love it this time. That doesn't mean I didn't like it, but uh, I was very impressed with it the first time out. Yeah, I agree. I definitely saw it on video. And this movie, I mean, we're talking about it in 99. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 99, but was released in a wider uh, capacity in 2000. And I don't know, like you said, if it played here in theaters in Vegas, but I definitely saw it at home on video. And I also loved it the first time I saw it and maybe not as much this time. Uh, Dave, did you see this? Like 10cc, I'm not in love. All right. But the Virgin Seas. <laughs> Surprisingly, I never did see it until oh, okay. last year. Oh, I, this right. was one of my early pandemic movies. I was like, let's catch up on a whole lot of movies. What but, did uh, you think upon your first movie? I liked it a lot, and I think I liked it about as much this time. Also didn't love it, love it, but it's it's really good, though. Yeah, no, I mean, it is good. I don't I don't mean to say that it, it, that it isn't, um, but I did, like, uh, fairly recently, I, I may have mentioned this, I contributed to this project where I had to do top 10 lists for, like, every year of all of cinema, and I had this on my top 10 list in 99, fairly high, and watching it again this time, I thought, oh, I don't know, I probably would bump it down a little bit, but it's still really good. Yeah, it probably wouldn't make my top 10 of 99, but um, I'm glad to see that you're realizing the error of your ways. Eventually, you'll come around on The Beguiled. You know, I haven't really given The Beguiled any kind of thought <laughs> until now, so uh, I guess uh, we'll we'll talk more on that. So any other background on The Virgin Suicides? That yeah, you that's mentioned? the film that we're talking about. Josh, I was wondering, did you read the book? I did not. No. I mean, it is a highly acclaimed book, as, we, as we've as we said, and Jeffrey Eugenides is a well-known author. He's one of these authors who's very non-prolific. Right. He's written three novels. But people love everything. Yeah, does. yeah. So I'm sure it's good, but um, it's not the type of novel I typically read. So no, I haven't gotten to it. Okay. So this, uh, you know, Gross Point, Michigan, but it's shot in Canada. Kind of reminds me of um, Juno, which we covered, another one that shows Nice suburban Midwestern town, but shot in Canada. EW ranked this the 39th uh, 
best high school movie out of 50. I don't really consider this a high school movie, though. Yeah, they don't spend a lot of time in the school. Right. And I think the themes here, like the angst, sure, that's teenage. But this is not what you consider, like, you know, 16 Candles or even from this year, American Pie. Right. Yeah. I mean, that review specifically, Moy McDonald says that it's not a teen movie, even though it's about teens. Yeah. Lux Lisbon isn't fucking a pie in this thing. Come on. And then... Lastly, uh, we talked about the music, uh, five songs by the band Sloan, who I was not aware of, a Canadian band. Dave, do you know anything about Sloan? I like Sloan. I haven't listened to them in forever except for in this. Tell us about them. I can't say anything else about awesome, them. Awesome, Dave. Yeah. Thanks for contributing. Josh, that's all I got. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the Virgin Suicides. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we're talking about our first feature pick, Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. And uh, as we were both saying just before the break, we had loved this movie when we saw it initially and not quite as much this time. Does that have to do with our ages, Jason? Everything has to do with losing <laughs> my need for a dictionary and tacos at the very moment. Um, I wonder if it does or if, you know, now that we've seen more of her stuff and her style, like if it just isn't as unique as it once was. That may be. That may be. But I do think this this as, you know, Ebert in his sort of clumsy, horny way points out, this does capture this sort of adolescent longing and maybe if we saw this, we weren't adolescents, but you know, when we were in college, there was a certain amount of identification that has faded a bit. I don't know. I mean, look, I love the before series and that's, you know, before sunrise's early twenties, right? Kicking and screaming, Noah Baumbach, you're right out of college. So this is like a few years after, but like, I mean, I still think like, I don't think it has to do with our age as much as just that. Um, you know, I think the first time, like you said, like, all the things you said are correct. Like we don't know these characters. It all is dreamy. It's all so unique and so different. And like in the last episode, you talked about like, okay, well now that you know this um, in the sixth sense, right? Like, can you go back and watch it and enjoy it the same way? And then like this one, maybe the fact that, you know, all these things, like it's, I'm not saying it's smoke and mirrors, but like if you're focusing a little deeper, maybe it doesn't work as well as just like kind of letting it, you know, kind of just pass through you and pass over you. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking watching it this time, like parts of it almost feel like it's just a music video where you wouldn't be concerned with like the plot and the characters. It's just a mood piece and kind of evoking a feeling of whatever music you're listening to for three minutes. But of course, it's a 95 minute movie. Right. And some of that is the best stuff in there, like when Trip Fontaine and Lux uh, go sneak under, I guess, the bleachers or wherever they're at in the prom. To, and you see this prom or the homecoming dance sequence and it all is all based on the music and the mood. And I thought that was one of the better sequences of the film. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that that's bad. And to me, the best, like in, in actually kind of most emotionally powerful sequence is when the Lisbon sisters have been kind of locked down in their house and they're not allowed to leave. And the boys in the neighborhood are able to call them on the phone. And instead of talking, they're going back and forth playing like their favorite records. And it's it's very, it's a very adolescent thing to be like, music expresses right. my soul, man. Mixtapes in the 80s, right? And right. this was the 70s. 
one fun fact, Josh. You Ooh, know I love fun you facts. You do love fun facts. Dave, you ready for a fun fact? Always. When uh, the Lisbon mother makes Lux throw out her records um, and they kind of spill, the one on the top of the pile is Alice Cooper's Love It to Death, which is a little... Uh, yeah, it's thematically. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice that one. I noticed the Kiss record and I think maybe rumors of Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I saw definitely in there. rumors and she did not want to throw away Kiss. Personally, I would have fought harder for rumors. Yeah. Well, you know, she's she's 16 or 14. So. She's 14, but she's a very uh, mature 14. She is. I mean, and she's the one of the sisters. It's interesting that she's, you know, she's the, the one, sort of most mature one or the one who's the most alluring and the, the boldest, the one who's most interested in connecting with the boys but she's not the oldest no she's the third oldest i think right? yeah well they're or the the second youngest or whatever you want to sort of look at it but cecilia the youngest is the one who goes first yeah um and then she leaves oh man and what a way to go yeah yeah she at the beginning of the movie attempts to slit her wrists and is is saved and then she uh jumps out the window and i guess impales herself on the fence below yeah yeah, it's still shown in this kind of dream. You never see any blood. You don't, you don't, it's not gruesome or anything, but certainly uh, seems unpleasant. Let's talk about that beginning stuff, Josh, because um, there's some interesting things there that I don't think carry out throughout the movie, right? So she, after she tries to kill herself, the doctor convinces the Lisbons to let them have a party. And you see that kind of like welcome to the dollhouse, weird adolescence. And um, you know, they're not per se mean to a special needs kid, but they're not the nicest per se to him. Yeah, and he never comes back. So that was a weird inclusion. Right. But um, and I was wondering where we're going with that. And then after she kills herself, um, you know, they're pulling the gate out of the um yard, and then the sprinkler turns on, which I found very funny, you know, because it's like it was just such a mundane kind of uh, suburban thing and i think we lose the humor as the movie goes throughout which is a kind of a bummer because i thought that was like really when i was into it yeah i mean i was surprised just to see that there was actually quite a lot of humor at least at the beginning and but i mean i think you kind of, as it gets heavier you kind of have to lose some of the humor to get the emotional weight of the movie as it goes along but, you know, I suppose I did miss a little of it later on. We keep talking about the Lisbon girls and the boys, but I think this is one of the last good James Woods performances before he went crazy. And Kathleen Turner is great in this movie. Yeah, they're both really good. As and the parents. Of as the, the, the parents of the Lisbons. Yeah. And Kathleen Turner, I think, was the first person cast in this movie because she had worked with Sofia Coppola on Peggy Sue Got Married. Directed by Francis. Right, Coppola, exactly. Which both was, acted in Which was film. another, you know, Sofia getting cast by her father kind of thing. But yeah, she's really good. I mean, she's another actor who we don't really see a whole lot of anymore. But she embodies that strict parent. And I think part of it is, like, you know, we're told how strict these parents are. And that's a very stereotypical kind of teen movie thing. The strict parents who won't let the kids do anything. And they could have been a lot more cartoonish. But you understand them a bit and they bring this sort of sense of uh, melancholy to those characters as well. And James Woods, too, is very subdued here, which he not usually. Yeah, I mean, James Woods, he, he's had some good performances over the years. Sure. Like now he's just a, a nut job, but whatever. But uh, the thing is, the James Woods character, especially after Cecilia dies, like he's disconnected from reality at that point and you don't really see a sadness in him you see like kind of just like a removal of reality and then he gets happy again when the girls 
you know, start to live a normal life. So it's almost to me that that intersection of the relationship between the Lisbon parents, where at first you think he's the strict one. And then after Lux breaks curfew, it's uh, Mrs. Lisbon who like really drops the hammer, takes him out of school, never lets him out of the house. Like that's that's really interesting to me. Yeah, you you do expect that the father will be the strict one, especially about dating and things like that. And it's James Woods. And so you kind of think that he's going to be playing that sort of character. And it turns out that he's he's sort of meek and lost in his way and doesn't know how to process things. There's a scene where the, the priest comes to visit, played by Scott Glenn, and all that James Woods can do is like talk about the baseball game that he's watching. Right. And when the boys come over for the party, he's like just trying to show them the model airplane. But I mean, he does kind of get it back like this you know he's a math teacher and when trip has that crush on um you know uh on lux and is like look what if i can i take her to the homecoming dance if i can find dates for all the rest like you can see he's kind of excited for the girls there whereas mrs lisbon is even when the boys come over like at first she was excited for the party look who's here look who's here and now at the homecoming dance she's like why don't you pin the roses on the corsages on the girls you know and (laughs) It's weird, and it almost made me want to learn more about the parents, too. Right, right. And you never really see how... I mean, the idea that five of your children would kill themselves, I think, has got to be, like, you you can't recover from that. No, and four in the same night. And then one of the things that I think I probably loved the first time around was the different narrations, the different viewpoints. You know, we have that adult Trip Fontaine uh, moment. And then at the end... You know, you have Mrs. Lisbon voiceover say the girls never lacked for love in our house. And it's like, well, I want to know more about this, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And that the adult Trip Fontaine played by Michael Paré, of course, uh, as we talked about in Streets of Fire in a previous episode. I really liked that. And I forgot that. And I felt like there could have been more. I mean, we have Giovanni Ribisi narrating the movie as adult Jonathan Tucker. I guess that's what Wikipedia claims. But to me, and a lot of the reviews seem to think that this is that he doesn't necessarily represent one particular character, that he's just kind of the voice of all the boys. Um, And that was what I what came across to me. I didn't notice any particular moment that indicated that he was the Jonathan Tucker. To me, I guess it was just that he was the main boy and that was the main boy. Um, but uh, Michael Paré, who we said, uh, you know, gets a lot of crap, did good here. He did. And what I was going to say is that that, which is different from the narration, which is very obviously this is adult Trip Fontaine. I liked that. And I would have liked to see more of that if she could have. And I don't know how it is in the book, but if she could have done more of those on camera and specific boys, because I feel like Trip feels like a real character. But the rest of the boys are like the girls, just this sort of like mass of undifferentiated people. Yeah, uh, that's fair. I mean, and you wonder like, you know, uh, you know, in high school, you have your friends in your outer circle and whatever's beyond that. The trip character we see him, is he in rehab at this point in time? That's what it appears to be, that he's the adult trip is in rehab. Yeah, yeah. I would have liked to have seen if they could have gotten the parents on camera at this point. In Something time. like that. I just felt like that, the, the tone of the movie of this sort of like looking back at this unique moment and, you know, trip too. It's like, obviously his life has not gone all that well in, in the intervening years. You know, I, I could have used a little more of that, but I did like seeing Michael Paré there. Yeah. He says, you know, that was the type of love that you never come across again. And he's lucky that he had it once. And then you see when he and Lux break curfew and they have sex on the football field 
um, he just leaves her. But you never see him be like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that or anything along those lines. Right. He he weirdly says that, like, he sort of, like, had to do it or something. Like, he just felt compelled to do it. And it's another one of these inexplicable things that this movie is full of. Yeah. That is, speaking of which, you know, Lux goes on to have, like, all this kind of casual sex on the roof. But she's, like, locked into her house. I'm like, how is she meeting, like, these dudes who work everywhere at restaurants and how is nobody noticing that they're banging on a rooftop all the time? Yeah, well, the boys across the street are noticing, obviously. Well, no, but no one in the house. But also, she's these are like one casual encounter after the next. And for someone who's uh, locked up in her house, she's got quite a swinging social life. She does. And of course, she doesn't have the internet to meet these people on. So yeah, you do wonder. But I think this is a movie that's, it, it's sort of futile to point out like plot holes in this movie because it's all just that, that mood piece. And you could argue that almost anything in this movie is like abstract or not meant to be real, even mm. because it's based on these emotional reflections of, of the boys. Belle du jour. Much like yeah. Belle du jour, actually, has, um, has a bit in common. And that Lux thing is interesting because all the, because like you said, she's the most mature and she's just like grasping for any type of human connection, which I think the other girls are like, it's already past them. They're gone, you know? Right. Well, and she's the one who, you know, spoiler, I guess, but as it's in the title and then the night when they all commit suicide, she's the one who invites the boys over and is still there to talk to them. And even though she's obviously planning to go kill herself and she says, oh, wait inside for me and I'll go get in the car. You get the sense that maybe if the boys had been a little more assertive about staying with her, that she might have not killed herself that night. I don't get that sense. Okay. I think they're, I mean, they're, they had the plan to invite the boys over. They were all going to kill themselves. One already had, and they're like, the boys will find us and that'll be how we die, you know? Right. Well, but see, I wondered is like, did they all have that plan or was that just Lux's plan? Uh, I mean, that's a fair question. It's kind of like an, a last act of defiance. Like, hey, you locked us up, but we still have these boys here, you know? But I mean, the plan for them to all, kill themselves i think was all their plan right but the idea of having the boys over and and lux being though she's the only one who interacts with them and the other girls seem to be already dead by that point it seemed like that that was her maybe last attempt to reach out and think what could happen and it it doesn't yeah and not to blame those boys because obviously they don't know that this is what's going on but that it, it sort of highlights the disconnect between the Lisbon sisters and the boys and the idea that, you know, these recollections and their sort of attraction or whatever, it's all abstract. It's all about the idea of them rather than than them as people because they don't really know them no, as people. No, right, that's true. And in teenage crushes, like how, until you get to like a level of emotional intimacy, how much do you really know your teenage crush? Right? right. I think that's part of kind of what this, this movie is. Conveying. But, but Josh, let's talk about Kirsten Dunst, man. We love so good yeah. in this. Yes. She was on a roll, man. Um, and she's a very good actress and, um, you know, she now, you know, I guess it's a legacy thing. She's kind of scaled back, you know, she's not doing as much, but she, you know, at this point in time, I think top teenage actress of her day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it's weird. I think there was a quote, I don't know if it was on, it's on Wikipedia or somewhere, where she said that when she took this role, she was sort of unsure of how big a role it was because so much of it was without dialogue. And it's interesting because Lux is by far the sister who talks the most, who has the most dialogue. But she really does have, there really are so many scenes of just kind of that, that impressionistic stuff where no one talks 
And she gives great performances in those scenes too. And that a lot of what we see about Lux and about all the characters is free of dialogue. I am going to say that does add to like the characteristics of her and what she is and who she is and why she's like this, you know, we've all had that kind of like elusive crush dream girl. Like, is she girl next door? Is she like, you know, unattainable. Right. Right. And you, as you said, you know, you don't really know anything, you know, you turn those people into sort of like an idea or a fantasy and you don't understand them as they really are. And I think the boys and us as an audience really don't don't understand that about the lesbian sisters. Dave, you're happily married now. Yes. So tell us about one of your romantic failures. <laughs> Jason's just really eager to find this stuff out. Trying to stretch the episode out, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, going back, like I, Kirsten Dunst is great in this movie. And whereas the sisters in general are sort of this, uh, you know, undifferentiated group or whatever. And I think I saw Jeffrey Eugenides, one of the things that he said that he would have done with the movie is to have different actors play the different sisters at at different times to really emphasize the idea that they're essentially like not people. That is interesting. Yeah. Though confusing. Right. And so I don't think that that was necessarily the thing to do, but it makes it clear that, you know, they're meant to be sort of symbolic rather than human in in certain ways. But I think Kirsten Dunst really grounds Lux at least. Yeah. Uh, Alicia Silverstone, Scarlett Johansson. I don't know if they were up for Lux or for the other sisters, but I think it's smart that you only have one well-known star here and that's the the one that we focus on, you know, because they're all like an idea as opposed to people at this point. Right, right. Did any of the boys stand out to you? I thought Jonathan Tucker did well, you know. Um, I'm that little Italian, not, uh, you know, there is that Italian immigrant who's kind of funny, but like the little, you know, Italian-American boy I thought did a good job. Yeah, whose, whose father or uncle is in the mob and has the secret tunnels. Yeah, yeah. right. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the movie here. Josh Hartnett, obviously, uh, on the rise when he was playing Trip Fontaine. Giovanni Ribisi already mentioned. But, um, yeah, it's really the, the girls movie here. Yeah, it really is. Despite, I think, what Ebert would say or, or how you can look at it, it's really it's really about them. And uh, I think it does effectively evoke that mood, even if it feels frustrating at times that there's not story, not enough story or not enough character. Like, I think you, you get the mood by the end of the movie. It's, it's gotten to you emotionally. Yeah. 96, we did welcome to the dollhouse and about the travails of a different type of uh, teenage girl. And I feel like this is a good companion piece though. Completely different. Yeah. I think this is much better than welcome to the, well then let's rate this thing, Josh. All right. Out of uh, five dead teenage girls. How about five (laughs) secret tunnels? Okay, sure. We'll Uh, do that. I think it's three to me, three secret tunnels. And I bet you upon first watch, I was like at four, four and a half, but three secret tunnels for me. I probably would have been higher as well the first time, but I'm going to give it three and a half this time. I think like I said, the cumulative effect of it by the end, I thought really worked, even if in certain moments I was like, I'm not sure I'm with this. But yeah, three and a half for me, Dave. I'm going with three and a half as well. All right. We'll come back in a moment then and talk about the legacy of the Virgin Suicides. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1999. We have been talking about our first feature pick, Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. And the legacy of this film, of course, is Sofia Coppola's career, 
Whereas, as we were saying, there was a lot of skepticism that kind of greeted her as she made this film. People just thought of her as Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, who maybe had undeservedly been cast as an actor in some of his films and thought maybe this was just the next kind of iteration of that nepotism. But she proved those people wrong. And not only on this, but even more so as her career went on. As you said, Jason, the next movie she made after this, Lost in Translation, really catapulted her into the huge stardom. Yeah, and that one's it doesn't make sense to me because it's Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray and Tokyo. Like, I should love that movie. But I did not love that movie, yeah. and I would like to see that again. I mean, I think that's still her most acclaimed film. Yeah. I, she won a, She won an Oscar for her screenplay for that. Yeah, I mean, and, and Bill Murray nominated for an Oscar, I think, for that, or certainly for a yeah. lot of awards for that. Yeah, I, I I loved that movie at the time I saw it, but I haven't seen it since then. So, I, I mean, I'd like to revisit it maybe for the opposite reason to see if I felt like it held up. Right. So, you know, after that, she did Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst again. And that one, I think, uh, fooled critics because it didn't get good reviews. And that movie, I really liked a lot. And I think her usage of style and modern music in a alternate time really like was at its best there. Yeah, I I liked it at the time. I think I didn't love it, but but I think that really shows like the boldness that she has. And I feel like to me, even when her movies don't work for me or certain elements don't work, I always really appreciate that she has that confidence. And in a weird way, it maybe comes from being like super rich and privileged. Right, it doesn't matter. She yeah, doesn't she can do whatever and she'll be fine. So why not just be bold? So then we get to Somewhere, which is, uh, I we both agree, her worst film, yeah. I think. And that's Stephen Dorff and is it Abigail Breslin? No, it's Elle, Elle Fanning. Okay, well, sorry. Um, and Elle Fanning is also in The Beguiled, right? Yeah, and, and Elle Fanning in general, I think is great. Yeah. But yeah, somewhere just doesn't go. It's, it's very much a mood piece, more so maybe even than The Virgin Suicide. I think so. It's her most, you know, it's there's not a movie. It's just like, hey, we're in a car and we're not talking or we're in a hotel and not talking. It's like, dude, give me something here. So. Yeah, yeah. After that, uh, I think her most underrated movie, The Bling Ring, which was good. And again, like heavily stylized and really spoke to uh you know dave i know you saw the other what's the other coppola director female's name oh gia coppola gia coppola's movie which is all about like kind of young hollywood and image and like becoming famous by not doing anything and i think sophia coppola's uh bling ring really spoke to that in an efficient way yeah i really like the bling ring a lot and uh which i agree i think is kind of underrated and to me i know you're gonna talk about the beguiled again but uh, to me, The Bling Ring is maybe the movie that connects most with The Virgin Suicides in terms of its look at teenage girlhood and sort of uh, pressures and idealization and things like that and how people handle it. Bling Ring, I think, is my favorite of her movies. Yeah, it might be mine, too. Although I would say Lost in Translation, but the fact that I haven't seen it in so long makes me wonder. I'd like to see that again. Then we get to The Beguiled, which you... I mean, I don't reason. love it, but I thought it was pretty good. Again, it's one of those, like, dude everything that you expect to happen which isn't much happens like literally it's like okay we're going to do this and then they do that you know there's nothing there to me although colin farrell nice to see him act yeah i mean and i don't did you see the original the beguile that we watched it in our as we've referenced the film club with tony macklin we watched it with clint eastwood um so i mean having seen that original i think i connected 
in a different way when you're saying, oh, everything was expected. Like I especially expected it because I had just seen the original, but I thought she she did a good sort of riff on it. It's not her best film or anything, but I think that one is maybe a little underrated too. Boring, horrible. Right. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, Jason doesn't like The Beguiled. Of course, On the Rocks uh, last year. Uh, we all felt like good, not great, right? Yeah, it's fun. I think people expect... In a, you know, she's so good in a lot of ways that people expect these like significant events whenever she makes a movie. And it was like, hey, here's just a kind of a, a fun hangout comedy with good actors. Yeah. And it didn't, you know, it didn't blow people away. And so they were disappointed. But you know what's interesting? Like, she's so good in a lot of ways. But now we've just gone through her entire filmography. And I think like she's made... One to two very good movies, a few good ones, and like some clunkers in there too. Well, I think maybe maybe it's less that she's very good in, and more just that she's always very Setting, bold yes. and unique. And when she makes a movie that's just kind of like a comedy that does a lot of things that other comedies have done, then people are like, oh, this is, where's her unique perspective in this film? Yeah, but... Uh, and that one's not bad, you know, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's an interesting filmography. She's also directed theater, which is interesting. La Triviata. Yeah, an opera that she directed. Yeah. And of course, that terrible Bill Murray Christmas special for Netflix. I never watched that, which don't, is don't crazy because it. I love Bill Murray. It's not good. She's got this thing, The Custom of the Country, which is based on a 1914 novel. And hopefully it's a much better period piece than The Beguiled. <laughs> yeah, that's her next project. I mean... Or at least it's supposed to be that hasn't been cast or anything yet. But that's she's working again with Apple TV Plus, which released on the rocks. So it seems yeah. like a good relationship. Right. She's and got there. Is that going to be a limited series or a film? I believe I it's know. a film. It's a feature yeah. film. Yeah. She's super talented. And like, you know, I still remember like we talked about it on the rocks, that sequence of them driving through the city is just so beautiful the way she shot. Yeah. That. Even something simple like that. So, Dave, do you have a favorite Sofia Coppola film? Kind of like you, Josh. Uh, Lost in Translation is what I would say, but I haven't seen it in probably 10 years, you know, so I need to revisit it one of these days. Yeah. I haven't seen it even long since it came out in theaters. Yeah. So it's even longer. So maybe we should watch it all together. We we could do that. Sounds like fun. So Josh, 1999, Kirsten Dunst, four movies she had out, uh, True Heart, which I don't know. But then the other three, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Dick, and The Virgin Suicides. Just heavy hitters, man. Yeah, I haven't actually seen Drop Dead Gorgeous, but it has a huge cult following. I love that movie when I saw it in the theaters. And Dick is another one that has a huge cult following, which is also great. And uh, this one, like, man, she's just just home runs right here. Yeah, I mean, she was a, a, a successful child actor and teen actor. And I think she really successfully transitioned into adult roles. Um, I mean, she was obviously huge in the Spider-Man movies. We talked about her when we did our right, Spider-Man that's 3 episode. teen-ish, I'd say. Teen-ish, but I mean, that is technically an adult character. But then even going on further, the second season of Fargo, she's really good in that. And I haven't watched, but that Showtime series she did recently on Becoming a God in Central Florida got a lot of acclaim. Um, you know, I think she's someone who, having been in this business since she was, you know, six or eight years old or whatever, feels that freedom to make interesting choices. And she deserves it. And she's great. And, uh, you know, the next thing she'll be in is a Netflix movie called The Power of the Dog, which seems like it's a very, you know, uh, difficult situation that she's put in there. And she's done some roles like that, like the Robert Durst one, you know, I uh, forget what that one was called. But oh, uh, the one with is it Ryan Gosling? Yeah, is also in that. Yeah. yeah. But like we mentioned Allison Lohman, right? And Magic Band. Yeah, yeah. And she's got, you know, she and Jesse Plemons, not Allison Lohman, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, I think, have like one or two kids together. And she's kind of scaled back and she's being a mom. And 
She's just, she's awesome though. And I know you love Bring It On. That's your favorite. I do love Bring It On. Yes. That's one of my favorite movies, which is, you know, soon after this. And that's still a teen movie. But, right. um, and she did that other good one with Martin Short, that teen movie that uh, is a little underrated. I forget what it was. Oh, I'm not sure. And uh, also the Stockwell movie, which was good, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Crazy Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The John Stockwell film. I do like that one a lot too. So, yeah, I think she's great. And she is scaling back a little maybe, but she's still working. She's not Alison Lohman you know, retiring entirely. We still see her and stuff. Josh Hartnett was a huge teen heartthrob at this time. And uh, he hasn't gone. I mean, he still works steadily, but uh, definitely not uh, Kirsten Dunst levels of uh, quality or uh, acclaim. I mean, Black Hawk Down, probably his best work. But I think, you know, he really fought hard against that teen heartthrob thing. So, and what, Penny Dreadful was probably the last thing that... Uh... Yeah, he was on, I, I reviewed a TV series that he was on that, oh, now I can't even remember the name of it, but he was the main star of it. It was like this Southern Gothic soap opera thing on Spectrum. It was very bad. Uh, and he was very bad in it. Um, as this like Southern lawyer, it was really not the right casting for him. Josh, the movie I was thinking of, Get Over It, also starring Cisco. Wow. Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst, Martin Short, and Cisco. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that movie. Um, it's interesting, too, that, you know, we kind of said I think this. a young Ben Foster, too. Man, it just gets better and better. Yeah. Um, you know, Kirsten Dunst was the, the biggest star amongst the sisters at the time and still is by far. I mean, the other sisters really didn't go on to notable careers. Some of them barely acted at all. Uh, AJ Cook is the only one who's really done a lot. She was on Criminal Minds for like 15 years or whatever. If, uh, yeah. you know, I'm sure my mom is very familiar with her work. Awesome. But, um, <laughs> the other, uh, Hannah R. Hall, Leslie Heyman, and Chelsea Swain were the other actors who played the sisters. And, and you know, they're really not doing anything. No, but uh, Kirsten Dunst, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Elle Fanning, we see these kind of, uh, you know, relationships that Sofia Coppola builds with these young actresses and they continue on through multiple pictures. Which is nice. Although, did she did Scarlett Johansson do another one with her? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't think so. But I mean, she worked with Kirsten Dunst twice more on Marie Antoinette and your favorite movie, The, the Beguiled. Beguiled. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to see them work together again. I mean, obviously, they work together very well. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, Josh, Kathleen Turner, like you said, we haven't seen much of, but a very interesting actor. Yeah, she's uh, been mistreated, I guess, kind of in a lot of ways, uh, you know, in terms of not getting great roles or getting roles where they end up humiliating her in comedies and stuff. Hmm. Dumb and Dumber 2, isn't she? Uh, I never saw it. What, yeah, is, you, what is she? I, I don't, I, you know, I feel like I've blocked that movie from my memory, but I remember just feeling sorry for her while she I was played, watching Right, it. she played like what it wouldn't be considered sensitive at all now, right? Chandler's dad. Uh, yeah. You know, and as even as a trans the... uh, person, but like in a very like, ha ha, you're a trans person. Right. You know? Right. I mean, and that, that was like double, it was mockery of trans people. And also again, like of mockery her, yeah. of her. Yeah. yeah. So that's unfortunate. So Josh, tell us about uh, why James Woods is your favorite Twitter follow. <laughs> oh yeah. We don't, we don't need to talk about James Woods political opinions. It's a shame. He's, he's, a, he's like at one time, a really good actor. He was a very good actor. Yeah. And he's kind of let that overshadow him. Uh, Jeffrey Eugenides, as we said, you know, not a prolific writer, but had these acclaimed uh, Pulitzer Prize, man. Yeah, and his his novels uh, always successful. The one other uh, film adaptation of a Jeffrey Eugenides work, The Switch, starring Jason Bateman and Jennifer really? Aniston. Was that like a short story? It was a, yeah, it was a short story, and I don't know how closely it adapts, but that's the movie where he uh, 
switches out the sperm that right. his friend is is inseminating herself with. Very uh, problematic yeah. concept of that film. <laughs> yeah, I, even when it happened, I was like, "What a you know." Yeah, I, and it's so. not it's not executed well. His I, books, uh, Middlesex, that's the one that won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, and then you know, the Marriage Plot was his last one, and he says he's got another one coming. We should learn how to read so we can read these. Books. Yeah, I have not, but I mean, many many people have. I did want to mention, you know, I mean, obviously the the Coppola family of filmmakers i mean you mentioned gia i love gia's first movie and i was bummed that um you know this new one the first one was uh palo alto palo alto and this one just like see dave you saw it yeah mainstream it's it's just really weird but um i i didn't hate it though and of course uh roman coppola is the second unit director on this film uh sophia's brother and has directed a couple of his own films, as well as worked a lot with uh, your friend Wes Anderson. Yeah, he writes with them sometimes, produces for him, I think. So. Yeah. And uh, Sofia Coppola's cousin, Robert Schwartzman, is in this film as one of the boys. And uh, he himself is also a filmmaker. Not as high profile in any way, but I did see one of his films called The Unicorn at a festival here about a couple who's looking for a threesome. I saw that too, I think. Oh, maybe we saw it together yeah. even at the Wasn't festival that here. The, directed by like the lead singer of Guster or Gomez or something like that? Robert Schwartzman is the uh, lead singer of Rooney. Oh, that's Rooney. Him. That, that's there you him. Go. Yeah. yeah. It's oh, all, it's, yeah. it's all, Rooney. it's all the same person. Yeah. And his <laughs> brother is Jason Schwartzman. His brother is yeah. Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. And, and your mom they, is Talia Shire. Yeah. And they, they are all the cousins of Sofia Coppola. Yeah. So, I mean, this family is just like full of these filmmaking talents. And why doesn't Robert and Jason get together and do like a tour with, uh, Rooney and Phantom Planet. I think they probably have. I think for sure they did. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I think they've done that. But Robert seems to be more focused on, he's directed another movie since The Unicorn um, that I haven't seen, but he seems to be more focused now on on the filmmaking rather than the music. And, you know, Gia coming up with with her films. So I wondered, I was looking, Sofia Coppola, she has two children and her older daughter is like 15 now. And so I'm like, maybe... She's giving, Five years yeah. at most, we're going to see her film. Now, I watched uh, Lick the Star, which was Sofia Coppola's like one short film from 1998. Oh, nice. And it's interesting because it is high school-y and also like kind of like Mean Girls-y like in some ways like this. But you wouldn't, if you watch that, you wouldn't be like, yeah, you deserve to make a feature next. Like you'd be like, this is film school and you need work, right? And right, so, right. But so, and I'm not, you know, in a way that's like, you could take that as like, oh, well, the nepotism. But in the other way, you could be like, wow, what a jump. She really knocked out this first feature in a really unique way. You think we'll ever see Francis Ford Coppola make another movie? I don't know. I mean, he had that sort of weird comeback period where he, I mean, like Sophia or whatever, was obviously just being like, I don't give a fuck. And this is the weird stuff that I want to do. And those movies were, I only saw, I saw Youth Without Youth. Uh, I didn't see, uh, was it Twixt, I think was his last film. But they were, I think they were all very weird and very polarizing. But, you know, good for him. But he's got to be like, isn't he close to 80 now? I mean, he's just hanging out on his vineyard and he deserves it. Yeah, but, you know, we got to say, because we talked about The Godfather 3, he recut it and it's gotten so much more acclaim on this recut. And uh, it makes me want to maybe watch it. Yeah, I've never seen it actually in any form. So um, I, I did read about the the acclaim for that recut. So he's still active. And who knows, maybe that would be the thing that would 
inspire him to go back and try to make another uh, original film. But I, if I had to guess, I would say maybe he's done. Mm. And of course, his wife, uh, Sophia's mother, is a documentarian. And uh, yeah, and a fiction filmmaker. I think she actually recently had a narrative film. I saw her first one um, that now I can't recall the title of it. Something about Paris. It wasn't very good. Mm. But yeah, it's just amazing how many of them. And, and you know, you want to spread out to to Nicolas Cage and, uh, you know, Christopher Coppola. And I mean, it's just this whole family. Tree of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, how do we get in on that? <laughs> Marry a Coppola? I guess. I don't know. I, you know, the, with Sophia Coppola, it's interesting because this is 1999 and her beau at the time was her husband, I believe Spike Jones, yes. who also debuted with, an awesome movie in 1999, uh, which was being John Malkovich, right? So, um, yeah, no, I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting, you know, she's been attached to a lot of other famous people, musicians, directors, right? So, um, you know, interesting life. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and I mean, even as the unevenness that we've discussed, I'm always eager to see her next film. I hope that that Edith Wharton adaptation is good. I, I, I am too. And I know I picked on The Beguiled because it's so horrible, but like, you know, three or four really good movies that I liked in there. Yeah, so. absolutely. So that is The Virgin Suicides, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Awesomemovieyear.com is where you can find us on the web. You were going to say check us out on our socials, so I just jumped the gun. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram, but I think you have to follow me on J Harris Comedy now on Facebook and J Harris Comedy on Twitter. I have another podcast called Food and Loathing. That is alive and well. I have a website called Go for Jason. That is dead like the girls in the Virgin Suicides. All right. Well, uh, joshbellhateseverything.com is my website. And Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, where I am nowhere near uh, the limit of people who can follow me. So please <laughs> do so. Um, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we have a lot of fun discussions about all these kinds of movies. And what do we have to discuss in our next episode? Well, Josh, it's our box office flop. I've never seen it, but I'm going to trudge through it for our audience. Maybe I'll like it. I doubt it. It's called Wild Wild West. I've never seen it either, so that should be an interesting experience for us. Tune in next time for Wild Wild West, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movies. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. And I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And you know what? I'm glad those girls are dead. Oh, what a way to, what a way to start this episode. We, we can cut that. I just wanted to do that as a joke.